0: Thank you all so much for uh, praying together. I hope and pray that you have a Bible. And if you do, I would love for you to open up to Leviticus chapter 19. We will end up in First Corinthians. That is the uh, our next passage, of course. But we are going to... Begin our time together in Leviticus 19, and we're going to work our way from Leviticus to 1 Corinthians. And there's a reason for this. Um, now you may uh, you may be sitting here on these Wednesday night services and say, Justin, we really talk about the same thing every week. And, and maybe maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe we talk about the same thing every week because we need to hear it, or or because the Bible um, is reiterating a, a, a very familiar message again and again. And what we found uh, as we study these books of the Bible, um, that these books of the Bible, they're not written, each chapter is not in a vacuum, as in they're all part of a larger text that usually has a central theme. As for, as for 1 Corinthians, the theme is that we are the body of Christ, and we've been talking about and hearing Paul talk to the church about how the body is structured and how the body um, is called. Is all to join together in following Jesus. And we've went through a whole lot of, of interesting, challenging, but most of all comforting passages of Scripture. And tonight will be another really important one, but one that we probably don't talk enough about and one that I think will bring us to a, a, uh, a very important place when it comes to uh, a tradition that we uh, take part in a lot. And maybe we don't realize how important it is and why it is so important. But before we get there, uh, we're going to be covering some really important topics and issues pertaining to the church, how uh, how it's meant to be, and how it can be how how it can be a truly godly community. And we're going to be talking about um, a specific act of worship that's meant to remind us of what the church is all about and how we can benefit from one another and from what God has built. So uh, that's going to be uh, uh, the, that's going to begin in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through the end of that chapter. Paul's going to address the nature of the churches coming together. Uh, in reality, the, the thing at Corinth, they were coming together, but in spirit, they weren't really... Coming together all that much. They might have been in the same place, but their hearts were not really knit together as they should be. And 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 the reason why Paul is addressing this is because of how disconnected Corinth had gotten from the intent of the local church. Uh, from the earliest of days, the early, the emphasis of the church was always rooted in this idea of community, fellowship, and participating with one another as the body of Christ. And that's what we've been learning about, right? We are. His body, but this is an overarching theme of the New Testament for this for for more than just that it was introduced by Jesus, but actually it 's been a core concept in the throughout the whole Bible throughout all of god 's earthly activity um, and that 's why I want to open up to Leviticus tonight because I want to show you how and why that the themes that we 've been talking about for the church, they were introduced long before there ever was a church when God first began to interact and deal with the world through the nation of Israel, that the background of our faith, the background of our story is the story of Israel, the story of God calling Israel and creating Israel to be his people and to be a light to the world. Uh, before there was a church, there was the nation of Israel that God had a covenant with that, of course, the new covenant replaced. But that covenant with Israel um, was rooted in the same themes and concepts that our new covenant brought to their fullest extent. Um, but, but I want you to, to remember, before Israel was a nation... Israel was a family, and, and the reason why that distinction is important is because even as a nation, God always called Israel to relate to each other, each individual Israelite, to relate to one another on a family basis, not in some sterile, civil way. Uh, again, we're citizens of a country. We're not obligated to uh, to serve one another, right? I'm here for me. You're, you're here for you, and sometimes you help me, and sometimes I help you, but that wasn't how it was for Israel. Israel was not to see uh, itself as a nation full of individuals all competing for their own success and prosperity, Israel was to see itself as a family. And a family, of course, uh, is there for each other and is called to bear each other's burdens. And that was from the earliest of days, the the standard that God laid on Israel's shoulders. And and that's why baked into Israel's formation uh, was a covenant that reminded them, reminded them that their relationship with God was forever connected to their relationship relationship with one another. And I'm talking about the old covenant. We refer to it as the law of Moses. Uh, And of course, the the big part of the law, or really the cornerstone of the law, were the Ten Commandments. And, And maybe you've thought about this before. Maybe you haven't thought about it before. But when you think about the Ten Commandments, and when you break the Ten Commandments down, four of them Four of the commandments are about how we privately worship God, but six of them are about how we publicly treat one another. Yes, the four commandments, the, thou shalt uh, not worship any other God, thou shalt not take the Lord uh, God's name in vain, that you should honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, that you should not make a graven image. Yes, those pertain to God and God alone, and how we individually, vertically relate to God. Yet the other six commandments, they are about how we publicly treat one another from the people in our lives, our parents, to any general person that we may find ourselves in the vicinity of. And that is, I think, a very interesting reminder and a reflector reflector of how our relationship with God is connected to our relationship with Others. And if you read the whole Old Testament, if you read the whole law, which I'm sure you, 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 you but maybe is the less frequented part of the Bible, most of us don't read through Leviticus all that much, but we're going to go into tonight. All throughout the law, God clearly and consistently defines holiness as how we respect his image. Now, remember the, the, the commandment, you shall not make a graven image. God says, hey, you don't need idols. Do you know Why? God told the Jews, don't make an idol of me. Uh, you know why God said, don't make a graven image of me? Because, because you and I are made in the image of God. The only reminder we need of God is to look in the mirror or look in the water as they did in their days. To look in the mirror and what do we see looking back at us? The image of God. We are made in God's image. So therefore, how we conduct our lives is important because we are an image of God. And what we do with an image of God is very sacred. So we should not do anything to disgrace God's image. We are made in God's image, but not just us, right? God said, You don't need an image of me because you can look in the mirror and you can look around you because there are images of God everywhere you look. So, God clearly and consistently defines holiness with regard to how we conduct our lives in His image and how we coexist with other images of God and when we're tempted to steal from, when we're tempted to lust after, when we're tempted to be jealous of, right? Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet. When we're tempted to look at other people as if they're in our way as we want to succeed and they're, at our, you know, they should be out of the way. When we're tempted to look at other people like they're commodities and not as if they are images of God. We are reminded who we are and how we honor God. And that brings us to a pivotal chapter in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, which you know more about than maybe you think at first blush. Most of Leviticus is about how individuals present themselves before God and are judged by their own conduct and own heart. But the second half of Leviticus, much like the second half of the law and the Ten Commandments, the second half of Leviticus is all about reflecting the second half of the Ten Commandments, as in it focuses on our interactions with and our actions toward each other. You read the first half, it's about, hey, going to the tabernacle, making sacrifices, atoning for your own sins, ceremonially being clean. There are some real uh, uh, um, uh, deep chapters, if you want to get into it, uh, in in Leviticus, uh, the first part of Leviticus. But at the middle portion of Leviticus, it begins to change its tune and it becomes all about our relationships with one another and how God is very interested in that and God is telling the Jews, hey, how you treat each other reflects your heart for me. And that's where we jump into a text the text tonight, Leviticus 19. We're gonna start at verse number nine and we're gonna read through verse number 18. Now you've heard these verses before, you've heard these commandments before, but I want you to pay attention about how focused on they are in terms of our treatment of one another and how we view one another and how we view even people that are completely strangers to us. Leviticus 19, verse number nine. When you reap the harvest of your land, Now, I think he's emphasizing your, because if it's mine, it's mine, right? I mean, not yours, it's mine. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. Don't you think Moses is kind of leaning into that? Your land, your field? Nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. What are you doing? What do you mean? I can't take all of my harvest from my land, from my field. I mean, who else's is it? Verse 10. Verse 10. You shall not glean your vineyard. You shall nather, you shall gather. Nor shall you gather every grape from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So what? What is God telling the Jews here? Yes, it's your field and your land and your harvest and your fruits. But I am your God. And what is your God telling you to do? To leave some of it for others. Now, if that feels a little bit abrupt or sharp it's because it would feel that way to them just like it feels that way to us right God is saying to the Jews hey how you treat each other even those that you have no relationship with matters he says you shall not steal nor feel falsely nor lie to one another So that's, you know, that's pretty common practice, right? Don't steal from somebody. Don't lie to somebody. Don't deal falsely. And again, what is this all about? How we treat each other matters to God, right? Verse 12, you shall neither swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. So God is equating here, listen to this. God is equating treating others wrongly with misusing his name. Because again, if we're all made in God's image, mistreating someone else is essentially disrespecting God. Verse 13, you shall neither cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. As in, hey, if somebody works works for you, better pay them because how you treat them matters. It's like, it's the same thing as if you'd kept from God. You shall neither curse to death nor put stumbling block before the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Again, he says don't take advantage of someone just because they're weaker than you or lack the things that you have. You're not better than them because you have those things. Remember, I am the one who made you to see and maybe made them not to see. Essentially, though, how you treat them reflects how you feel about me. See, the Jews thought, well, how are the deaf going to know and how are the blind going to know? They can't see or hear what I'm doing to them. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. They can't, but I can. Verse 15, do no injustice in judgment. You shall neither be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So again, notice how God is very interested and what people do. He says, are you gossiping about somebody? That matters to me. I hear what you say about them, and you may say, well, they shouldn't have done that. But God says, hey, I care about what you say about that person. And maybe you've never thought, maybe you've never read this before. Thought, I didn't know God was that interested. Maybe this makes, a, makes what Jesus says in, in the New Testament love one another. Maybe it makes that make a lot more sense, doesn't it? I think it does. Verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall, rebuke, you shall rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. As in, hey, if you get in, get in an argument with your neighbor, you should be able to work it out and, and, and not be guilty of sin in terms of hating them just because you had a little bit of an argument. As in, reconciliation should be a necessity on every believer's heart. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You wonder where that came from. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Now, that is a series of convicting, passage, convicting verses that cut so deep to every one of us, doesn't it? And why does it cut so deep? Because it all of a sudden makes our individual relationship with God suddenly, suddenly reflected by our relationships with other people, even in this case, people that we don't really know that well. So what we hear for in these passages is that we are to go out of our way to care for those with less, that we are to uh, never view someone as a stepping stone for our own exaltation, we're to value each other in our words and in our actions, and also, also, this is very important. Notice how in verse 18, it says, verse 17, you shall not hate your brother. But then in verse 18, it says, hey, you shall love him. I don't know about y'all, but there's people that I don't hate, but I don't really love them. I'm just kind of indifferent to them. And I think, well, as long as I don't hate them, that's okay. But you know what the Bible teaches? And again, this is, whew, this is why we all need to be on our face before God praying for revival every single day. And, and I mean this. The Bible says that we should neither hate nor that we should simply tolerate, but that we should actively and genuinely love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, I think this acknowledges that we're pretty selfish by nature, right? I know we can get through. We can get in some seasons where we're kind of down on ourselves, but overall, we love ourselves. Even when we aren't really being good to ourselves, we still value ourselves. We, we know that. We love ourselves, and, and, and the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. So not only are we to not hate someone, we're not just, we're not supposed to just tolerate them. Well, hey, I just kind of get, get along with you. and I'll see you when I see you. No, that God's people. And again, you say, well, you know, that's not how most people live. Of course, that's not how most people live. But most people are not God's people, right? Most people are not saved. But we are, you are, we are. We should be known for this, not as people who just tolerate others, but that as people who genuinely love each other. Now, that's the, this is the idea, correct me if I'm reading this wrong, that there, there's this idea of divesting ourselves of individuality and investing ourselves in the community where God places us. For the Israelites, it was their nation, but also the surrounding nations, were, were, they were supposed to welcome and, 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 and bring their faith to. So they were basically called to love everyone because as they would find out, everybody was their neighbor. And it was never just for charity, as in they weren't supposed to just do it just because God said to do it, but they were also supposed to do it because they needed each other. That you and me may think we don't need other people, but we do. We do. And and this is a clear reminder throughout the Old Testament that people simply do better, that you and I simply do better when we stick together. And that becomes the basis for the faith community, not just a place that you go on Saturday or on Sabbath and worship, but a place that you are a part of, a place that you dwell from. And that brings us to Ecclesiastes, two of my favorite often-referenced verses. If you want to find your way to Ecclesiastes, it's probably halfway through the Old Testament. Uh, I, I want you to see these verses with your own eyes. Uh, Rather than putting these on the screen, bookmark these in your Bible, highlight these if you can. Uh, This is from Solomon. Solomon wrote this at the end of his life. He was the king of the world. He had all the power in the world. He didn't really need any friends because he had himself. But Solomon realized at the end of his life that he should have took more time for people because he needed people just as much as they needed him. Solomon thought, I'm king, I don't, you know, I don't need people, people need me, I wanna be good to people and love people and share with people, but Solomon realized later on in life that it wasn't just about him loving others, it was about him being loved by others because he needed that community and that fellowship with the other people of God. Yet he realized it may be too late. Ecclesiastes four, uh, again, two verses you've heard me qu- preach a lot and quote a lot, uh, three, actually four verses. Uh, look at verses, the verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when, your Bible says when, not if or potentially when they, if they fall, but when as in we all fall, don't we? And woe to the one when he falls for he has no one to help him up or she has no one to help her up so why is it good to be in community because when you fall someone's there to lift you up and the bible also says be careful if you think you're never going to fall because of course of course you're going to fall of course we're going to fall we're going to stumble again if two lie down together they'll keep warm but how can you keep warm alone Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is written by the king of Israel, who didn't think he needed anybody because he was the king, and he realized, yeah, I couldn't keep warm by myself. I may have looked like I had it together, but inside, I needed some help. So, We've got, that, we've got that passage from Leviticus that really is the overarching theme of the law, love one another as you love yourself, and that reflects the love that you have for God. We have this passage from Ecclesiastes about valuing each other and having company with each other, having community with each other, and, and that really serves as the basis for the ministry of Jesus. He came and preached these two ideals. Hey, love each other because your love for others authenticates your love for God, and also, you need each other. You're weak. You're prone to stumble and fall. You need an accountability. You need a community to be a part of, And that is the basis for what Jesus came to start. He said in Matthew 16, on this rock, on this foundation, that I am the Savior of the world that came to show you that God loves you and that you can be loved by him and that you can love others through that love for him and that you need each other and that you need community. On this rock, I will build my church, my gathering, my assembly, my ecclesia, my community. And it wasn't just the nation of Israel, it was the whole world that would be, that would call out people from all nations, right? He said, go to the whole world, go to all nations and preach my gospel, my good news and command them to follow my way of of love one another and of coming together in the community. The church, though it is international, it is locally represented, Locally represented by specific communities, and each specific community is an outpost of the kingdom of God, as in we are sent from that outpost to serve God. But each community is also an earthly refuge, an earthly oasis where we come and find help from one another and from the Lord. So this is the model that this this is the model that the New Testament preaches. And again, based on that Israeli model. Brought into each individual community, and we see right off the bat, and y'all have read this, you're probably tired of reading this passage, but I want us to look at it again and again and again until we internalize it, because this is so important as a church. Right out the gate, when the church starts in Acts 2, this is our last stop before we get to Corinthians. Y'all know this passage, you should be able to quote it by now, but Acts 2, 42 through 47 is the earliest basis for the church, and I want you to look at that one before we turn over to 1 Corinthians. Right out the gate, in Acts two forty-two through 47, Luke tells us what the early church looked like. And again, what are, what are our pillars? Love, love God, love others. The way you love others reflects how you love God or if you love God. And you need community. You need each other. You need to be there for each other to help each other when you might fall, when you do fall. So this community, this is the church. And right out the gate, we see how the, the early church exemplified this. Acts 2, verse 42, they continued from that opening day steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. So as important as their beliefs were was their practice and their fellowship. So notice that Luke defines the early church not just by what they believed, but by their fellowship. He says the early church was a community. They were a family. They broke bread together. They prayed together. It says that fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles and all who believed were together and were, had all things in common. And, and it goes on to say they sold their possessions and their goods because they needed each other. They, they, they took care of each other. They were in one accord from house to house. And again, we see this emphasis on fellowship. They broke bread together. They had food together. They praised God together. So we see this basis for the church, right? This community. Now, the word used here in fellowship and the word used all throughout the New Testament is a little Greek word, koinonia, koinonia. You see K-O-I-N, kind of like the word coin, C-O-I-N for us, koinonia. Anywhere you see in the New Testament the word fellowship, community, participation, partnership, it's this word koinonia. And that is the basis for what the church is all about. We are a partnership. We are a community. We are a fellowship. We are participating with each other, and you can't remove that from what the church is. Now, on that notion, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll be reading from it in a minute. While you do that, I want to talk about why the church hasn't always kept this idea front and center, because clearly we haven't, right? If the only reason you ever hear people talk about the importance of church unity is when they worry about it might affect how, how, how it might affect them, it, it re- exposes just how far we've gotten from this. Because I only ever heard people talk about church unity when I was little, whenever people were upset that they might suffer at somebody else's expense. How can something built on the foundation of community and partnership somehow find its way to be emptied of most of those fundamentals? I want to ask you that. How can something that we've, we've clearly seen that was built on the foundation of community and fellowship and partnership and participation, this, this idea of love, this idea of, of, of bearing each other's burdens, how can something built on that have gotten so far away from that? And I'm not saying you've gotten away from it. I'm just I mean institutionally. Can't you agree the church has gotten away from this? Specifically in that it's more about I show up and I bring, you know, I've got my plate and you've got your plate and they've got their plate and we all fill our plate up and we shake hands and we go home and we're like, hey, I'll see you next time. You know, but how, how can a church, how can the church built on the foundation of gatherings and fellowship and partnership and community where all of us are here for each other and accountable to each other? How could that, how did that somehow devolve into this a la carte style restaurant that the church is in today's world? And y'all know what I mean by a la carte style restaurant. I mean, we get in line, I've got my tray, you've got your tray. I say, I want that, but you don't want that on your plate. I I, I need two of those, but you don't want any of those. How did the church become that? That we all get in line, we go through the line, and I get what I want, you get what you want. We sit down, we don't ever see each other, and hey, I'm going to sit down at my table, and the only time I want to see somebody is when they come and fill my cup up because I get thirsty. Right? Right? How in the world did the church go from being this community fellowship, partnership participation, this koinonia? How did it go from that to being this thing where we all just line up with our trays and then we go to our corners? How did that happen? How can what we've seen the Bible portray as a deeply communal, connected experience become something so sterile and something so commercial and so individualistic? How did it go from community to commodity, from people investing to, per, to a personalized product, how did they go from serving others to serving ourselves? Here's how. How has this happened over the last 2,000 years? Because instead of preaching the full gospel, we settled on just half of it. Because it was more convenient and more malleable to our pre-existing lives, and it got more people into pews, but it didn't keep more people in the church. As in, we were all about preaching salvation, how salvation puts us, puts Christ in us but we forgot that it also puts us in Christ do you see that we were all about salvation puts Jesus in us but we didn't talk about how it puts us in Christ we were all about how salvation puts Christ in our body in our heart but we didn't tell people that salvation put them in his body did we and maybe we weren't told that either and we read the New Testament, we read about in Christ, his body, community, fellowship. What does all that stuff mean? I don't know. I guess it's not that important. First Corinthians has told us it's of the utmost importance, hasn't it? And what Paul is going to talk about in the back half of chapter 11 is the irreplaceable nature of communal worship and communal fellowship in Christ And how one particular church tradition communicates this more than maybe any other practice. So with that note, first I'll look at verse 17 through 19 of chapter 11. What I say, what I speak, I speak not accordingly to the Lord, but as it were... Oh, I'm in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. Open to the wrong one. Chapter 11, verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse... He said, hey, you're coming in, but uh uh-huh, no, nothing look good. For first of all, when you have come together as the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. He didn't mean that they're disagreeing with each other. He just means, hey, y'all are all going to your own corners. You're together, but you're not together. Does that make sense? You're all in the same building, but I don't see you as all in the same spirit. For there must be factions among you that those who are reproved may be recognized among you. So Paul says, hey, I believe that there are these divisions, and in fact, that it has to happen so that God can tell those who actually care about what the church is about from those who don't. Not to put it bluntly, or too bluntly, but that's the truth. He says, hey, I'm glad there's those divisions, and I think this should encourage some people who are trying their best, pastors and church members trying their best, because when you see those that just don't get it or don't want to get it, hey, Paul says, hey, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. Just let it be. You know, Love them and work on them, but hey, if they don't get it, they don't get it. But the area that perennially plagues the church and stunts the church's spiritual growth and progress is this issue that we've just talked about that he's going to get into. Now, from what we can gather from Paul's other writings, there were common divisions between rich and poor, race and ethnicities, but there were other divisions as well. Uh, To fully understand where he goes from this, it's important that we understand the structure of most early church services. In uh, In the early days, the church would gather for several hours at a time. On Sunday mornings, it wasn't just an 11 o'clock thing or a 10 o'clock thing and come back Sunday evening. In the early days, when the church came together, when he talks about them coming together, he doesn't just mean they came together for an hour. And I think it's important that we know this. Um, One of the earliest reports uh, comes from a Roman spy named Pliny the Elder. And he was sent to spy on the churches of Rome, uh, of the churches of the Roman Empire. And he wrote to the emperor at the time, Trajan, and listened to how he describes the church that he spied on. They were accustomed, the Christians were accustomed to meet on a fixed day, that Sunday, before dawn, and they sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to God, and they bind themselves by oath, as in they listen to a sermon and they commit to do what it says. When it was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again, as in they had a separate place that they assembled to partake of food. So they would come together and worship and hear a lesson from God's word. Then they would immediately and weekly go into fellowship. So they would get together about 6 a.m. and around 11 o'clock when the service was over, 11 o'clock when the service was over. So after being together for five hours, they sang a lot and they preached a lot and they testified a lot. Whew, that would kill us, but they did it. And around lunchtime, they would go into the second act of worship, the second act of the service, which would take several more hours. They would gather around a big table. So they would come together uh, for fellowship, and to kick off this time of fellowship, they would take the Lord's Supper together, and then they would have a bigger spread. This was akin to how the Jews celebrated Passover. There would be a Passover meal at the top of the hour, then they would all have an actual meal. The early church adopted this model. In, in ancient texts, we read about what they called agape feast. Or they would refer to it as the agape. And agape, of course, means love. And these were called love feasts. And every single week, every single Sunday, they would have these love feasts at the the second half of their services. Every week, they would uh, would anchor their, their, their time together around these love feasts. As much as they were there for the sermon and the song, they were there for these feasts of love. The idea was we aren't just here to hear what God says to us individually. We're here to partake in the Lord's grace together. And this communal meal was a way of physically reminding them of of the church's intent and the church's structure. What was going on at Corinth, though, was a complete disrespect for the spirit of these love feasts. Some were just seeing it as a chance to hang out with friends. Some didn't want certain people to participate. Some just got in their own corner and, you know, just indulged in the food and didn't, take, didn't care about why they were there at the meal together. Hardly anyone allowed this symbol of sitting down at a table to register with them. Does that make sense? That the people at Corinth, they just saw this as, well, it's just a lunch, right? We're just here to hear the sermon, we're here to eat, and who cares what it's for? That quickly, they had lost the meaning of it all. I want you to think about how Jesus often talked about eternity, how he always compared eternity to a feast. You're aware of that, aren't you? He didn't just say there would be a feast in eternity, but he talked about eternity in heaven with respect to a feast. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So Jesus compares all of eternity to a wedding feast. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted calves have I slaughtered everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So what is God comparing heaven to? A giant table where we all sit down together. Not a place where we all go to our own corner, right, and see Jesus every morning when he delivers the milk, right? Not a place where we go and we do what we want to with our own families, but a place where we are all around the giant table with our brothers and sisters in Christ. What is heaven like, Jesus said? It's like sitting down at the table with your family. So now you know why the early church was so focused on sitting down at the table with their family. You know how Jesus, how, how, what John said he saw when he saw the end? Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. So what does John refer to as eternity as? The marriage of banquet of the Lamb. And notice how he refers to the church as the bride, not as all the Christians. He refers to a single entity, as in I don't go in by myself, and you don't go in later by yourself, and we're all not in our own little corners, in our own little individual cliques. We are together. It's not the Baptists and the Evangelicals and the Protestants and all the other, right? We're all together, right? And if that isn't your idea of the church, then maybe it's not your idea. Ideal Uh, 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 maybe you don't have the right ideal of what it's all about then. Let us go, he says, it was granted to her to clothe herself with a fine linen. And then John explains, the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. He says, hey, I'm talking about a single entity, but that single entity is all of the saints. But from from God's perspective, we're all one. He says, "And the angels said, "Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb, as in it's all about this meal." It's not that every church service needs to conclude with a meal where we all are gathered together, but the idea here is that we see ourselves as sharing in something, sharing in something. I hope that makes sense. I know we've spent a long time on this, and we're just going to briefly breeze through this passage because this passage, it's important but I think explaining it up front was more important so you understand what we're about to read. The gravity of what we do when we're gathered together carries so much more weight, and the fact that gathering is so important and in leaning into the body, all of this gained emphasis here. Listen, church, we ought to paint the town red with this message, because there's a whole lot of people that they think they're going to heaven when they die, and they think they know Jesus, but they have no regard for the church. I've, had, I've done so many funerals for people and they tell me this story at the end of the day. Well, they didn't go to church, but man, they really loved Jesus. And I'm I'm thinking, what? You love Jesus, but you you didn't you didn't love the body that He placed you a part of. Oh yeah, I just wasn't for that. Just wasn't for them. And hey, I, I get it. There's people that can't be here that would die to be here. But there's a whole lot of people. Somehow, someway, they forgot. And there's people in places like this. They might be here, but their hearts aren't. And that's what was going on at Corinth, right? Paul is gonna comment about how their behavior at this meal was unbecoming, and he narrows his focus on the Lord's Supper. So I want you to follow with me verses 20 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll make, some, we'll make a few comments, and then we'll, we'll close. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. He is saying, hey, y'all come, but you don't really come for the right reason, as in, as in to celebrate the supper of, of, of Christ and to celebrate the communion. You're just here for the extracurricular stuff. He says, well, uh, for in eating, one takes his own supper ahead of the others. One is hungry, another one is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in or drink in? He says, hey, do you think this is just an extension of your, per- of, of your personal life? No. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. He says, hey, this is far from what it should be. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And listen to this. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body as in hey you're here but you don't realize why you're here for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body 30 for this reason many are weak and sick and among you and many sleep or have died for if you would judge yourselves you would not be judged But when you are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. That's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? That God was actually, come on, y'all read it right? God was killing people, killing people because they weren't taking this seriously. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat and wait for one another, as in, hey, remember why you're here. It's not for you, it's for us. You are part of us. We are the body of Christ but if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. He says, hey, if you're just here because your stomach, for your, for your physical, fleshly ideals, then they say at home. I mean, I, I'm not saying that, but Paul's saying that. Lest you come together for judgment and the rest I'll settle when I come. He says, hey, I got some more to deal with, but I'll deal with that when I get there. So again, the emphasis is our joint participation in Christ, of Christ and partnership together in Christ. You know, it's our misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper that might expose just how far off base we've gotten from this when it comes to giving focus to the church gathering and what we gain from being in the same place for the same cause. Notice he explains in verse 23 to 26 what the Lord's Supper means and why it's important that we take part in it. Over the years, there have been so many wrong interpretations of this celebration, and mainly because it was detached from the communal ideals. For the first several century, the Lord's Supper was a part of these love feasts which everyone would finish worshiping and, and weekly they would gather to celebrate communion and then have a meal together. This breaking of bread was a call back to the Passover and, and of course the night that Jesus died and communion was to be taken as a communal act of worship for two reasons. To remind us that we all have the same provision, that God has saved us through the same means, that we're all saved the same way through the blood of Jesus, the body of Christ, but also to remind us that we are sustained together and we are strengthened together by the Lord together and for each other it's connected with baptism we're baptized into his body we are sustained by his body and blood for the purpose of the body that we're placed to be a part of it causes us to examine our hearts and know that we don't take this in a vacuum we don't participate in Jesus apart from one another in these early days listen to this in these early days God was literally striking people dead that were taking this in a nonchalant way People say, I want to go back to the early church days when there were miracles and all these supernatural occurrences. I remind them that in those days, when someone like Ananias and Sapphira didn't give 100% of the proceeds, not just 10, when they didn't give 100% of the proceeds, God struck them dead, right? These people that were taking communion without their hearts being in sync with Jesus and his body, God took their lives we often grade spiritual health by how much God is pouring out his blessings, but it can also be said, you can determine how present God is in a community by how intolerant he is of sin and how quickly he snuffs it out. Amos 3.2, listen to what God told Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you. Whoa, shouldn't it be you only have I known, therefore I won't punish you? No, what was God telling Israel? I take so serious your holiness, I'm not going to let you get a little bit out of line. That's how God was hands-on with the early church. Maybe it's that we have drifted so far away. Maybe it's that the church of our generation is so far away that God has to give us more grace. Perhaps if we took it this serious, we would see God pour his power out, not just through the blessings, but also through these severe of ways where he makes it very clear what is what he approves of and what he doesn't approve of. You know, I think most importantly, this passage should drive us back to what church is all about. It should drive us to celebrate Jesus together and partake of him together. There are many different interpretations of communion. Uh, Catholicism turned it into a weekly sacrifice, which is far from what it was meant to be uh luther pretty much continued that ideal and then there was some that came along and said all communion is just symbolic it doesn't matter you don't even have to do it but when you do it it just reminds you about what jesus did but i think there's more to it than that i think when we come together as the body of christ and partake together from the lord's table it's just like with any service that's a special opportunity to allow the holy spirit to do a special work in our hearts John Calvin referred to this as a spiritual union with Christ in his body. When we take communion together, we are spiritually nourished and spiritually united. When we take communion, we are reminded that it's not I, it's we. It's not me, it's us. We don't want to be found unworthy or disrespectful of his body, do we? We don't want to be found kind of just showing up for ourselves and not really caring about the greater body that we have been placed in. Communion ra- reminds us of how his body is structured and how we are sustained, how he has provided for us individually, yet communicate, communicates with us communally, and how we receive from him and partake in him together. And by doing so, we give place to the Spirit to do what we cannot fabricate on our own and cannot receive any other way. I think it's only right that we end our time together tonight from that passage by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Praying that God would nourish us by his spirit and begin doing a work within us and by joining us together with him in his body. What I'm gonna do is say a prayer for us. I'd like for all of us to come together like we normally do. And we're, just all, gonna be, we're all gonna just stand together around the altar alongside each other and take the elements together. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promise of your presence but also the guidance you've given us in what the local church is all about it is an extension of your body it is your body of believers you've called us out of the world out of ourselves and you have made us a part of your body lord let us not take this in a disrespectful way let us not take this in a nonchalant way let us be reminded lord of what it means for us to be members of your body. Lord, as we come out of ourselves and we come into you and we become a part of each other, Lord, as we come to the table, we pray that you would nourish us through your spirit, unite us, join us together, and help us to see that together we are your body. And together we find our place in this world until you take us to our greater place in heaven to come. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.